guys, my name is Mariana and welcome to the Genocastes. So it's been a long time since I didn't record any episode, but you know, because of school, the semester starting and everything, it has been kind of complicated, but we are right back and we're going to keep on going. So we were gone in the, top, uh, in the topic of genetics and evolution. And right now we're going to enter the subtopic of gene pools, evolution and selective pressures. So let's get starting with discussing what a gene pool is. So you're going to have uh, a species, right? That is going to have different genes with different alleles that we have discussed in past episodes. And from this, we know that alleles are different versions of the same gene. So a gene pool consists of all the genes and their different alleles present in an interbreeding population. So this means that the population is going to breed, you know, with each other, each individual well, different individuals, and so they're going to have different alleles, and some of them might be more common than others. So uh, it's similar to the genome of an individual, but includes the alleles of all the individuals in the population. So some of them, as we, other, as we have already mentioned, are going to become common, while others are going to remain rare. But it is important to say that as evolution keeps on going, these frequencies are going to change. So, allele frequencies are usually ex expressed as a percentage or proportion which measures how common an allele is in a population. So, the depth or richness of the gene pool is measured by the number of alleles and their relative frequencies. And a very clear example of this are dogs, for example, <laughs> are dogs, right? So, dogs are a single species but there are many, many, many breeds of dogs. Um, so they can vary between shape, size, uh, fur color, length, as well as personality traits. But you can have, I don't know, collies or terriers, and they look very different from each other. But they can still breed between each other. And, you know, their alleles are also going to be like the same, in the same gene pool, like, all like there is a single gene pool for all the dogs in the world because you could technically breed any dog with another dog and you would still get a uh, fertile offspring. Um, and this is how come gene pools are so amazing because it can get to be huge depending on the species, right? Um, so as we have mentioned, the entire allele frequency change as well as gene pool come all the way from evolution which is, you know, it requires genetic variation in order to happen. And as we know, the original souls, the original source, original source of all genetic variation is mutations. Um, so most mutations are often going to be really harmful. Some of them, they're going to be neutral, but others, they're going to be really beneficial. So through which mutations events um, are going to occur and it will eventually lead to new alleles. And it is important to say that these mutations can happen on any living being. Um, so evolution is going to happen in a population, but the natural selection is going to act on each individual because it's going to measure its rate of success to reproduce, right? So new allele combinations in individuals are going to occur through crossing over as well as random orientation of homologous chromosomes, which is what we discussed in the episode of meiosis. 
So, given enough time and a large enough populations, alleles that are going to be helpful, they become more common in the population, even though these individuals might not be, the you know, like, perfect. So, I don't know, if there's a dog that all of a sudden can, you know, run at 120 kilometers per hour and then it just doesn't get captured by another predator, then that dog is going to have many offspring and, you know, so on. They're going to inherit their genes. And that's how come a single allele can make, uh, you know, an individual so successful. So it is, it is important to remember that evolution requires that allele frequencies change with time in populations, as well as that in a population, individuals with different combinations of alleles may show different survival and reproductive success because of natural selection. So selective pressure leads to evolution of the population. And finally, when populations are isolated from each other, genetic drift and different selective pressures can cause the population to evolve differently. So over time, when enough differences accumulate, the population may speciate. So basically, this little um, paragraph just described uh, the entire episode, which is that um, selective pressure is what, as well as mutations, is what creates evolution. So there is uh, another concept, which is not going to be measured, it's not going to be mentioned farther ahead, which is called genetic drift. So the concept might be explained later, but it's better to say what it is right now. So let's say that in a population, you're going to have 13 flowers. One of them, uh, well, 10 of them are going to be yellow and three of them are going to be red. So from these 10 yellow flowers, eight of them are just going to be squashed by a giant elephant. And let's say that um, it was in a sandy environment. So the yellow color is going to be favored over the red one. But because this nice old elephant squashed our dear flowers, then we're only going to have two yellow and three red. So there are going to be more red flowers than yellow, but it's not because selective sure actually said, oh, uh, yellow flowers, they're not going to be favored. No. Um, so that's how genetic drift works. Um, there, a random event is going to all of a sudden change the allele frequencies, although they are not favored originally by natural selection. Um, so this, it could lead sometimes to trouble in the population, but you know, it's some stuff that happens. And another really important concept for this is selective pressure. So it's a little bit different, but here's when natural selection comes in. So environmental factors can affect the rates of survival and reproduction of certain phenotypes, which are determined by the alleles. So phenotypes are physical characteristics. So this influence of natural selection is going to be called selective pressure. And it can be caused by both biotic and abiotic factors. So that means it can be caused by, I don't know, the amounts of rocks or some predators that are around. And selective pressures sometimes are really weak or sometimes they can be extremely, extremely strong. So there are different, um, the effect of this pressure can be different in a population. And so there could be stabilizing selection, directional selection or disruptive, disruptive selection. So if you wanted to draw them, well, I'm going to explain to you each one of them and then tell you how to draw it. So for example, in stabilizing selection, um, you're going to favor the individual that is in the middle of the spectrum. Of the spectrum. So an example of these are seagulls that, 
You know, new colors could be introduced by mutations uh, in these seagulls, but because the environment is always going to be pretty much the same, then if there is a change in this um, color, it might not be really favored, and therefore uh, natural selection is always going to favor this uh, white seagull, right? So it's never going to change, and yeah, that would be stabilizing selection. Uh, for example, in a spectrum, it would be the individual in the middle. So you're going to draw a mountain and the peak, that is going to be the population that's going to be favored. So if you had, I don't know, a spectrum and a color of crabs, then the creamy crab, which is the color of the sand, that is going to be favored. Uh, for example, directional selection, uh, it's different. So when the extreme of a trait is going to be favored, a classical example is the increasing neck length of giraffes over many generations. So, as we know, trees are going to grow extremely large. And therefore, giraffes, if they have a long neck, they are going to be favored. But if you look back in time, you know, in evolution before giraffes were giraffes, they didn't have a long neck, obviously. It was just because, you know, from each generation it was favored, each random mutation was favored in order for giraffes to eventually grow larger necks. And if you had a crab population, you would have to draw like a, the darker crab would be favored. You know, the sand might go a little bit darker and therefore this extreme allele would be favored. So if you were to draw it, you would have to draw a mountain and then next to it another mountain. But, um, you know, you had to show that the extreme is the one that is favored. And finally, and the most weird type of selection, which is disruptive selection, which is actually not that weird, but if you draw it, it is kind of weird. <laughs> so you're going to draw in here two mountains, but the part in the middle, it has to be extremely low because you have to say that the guy in the middle, he's not going to be favored at all. Um, so a career example of this, well, it's actually what leads to this concept of speciation. So disruptive selection is the source of new species coming along. So it can sometimes happen because geographical conditions separate species or behavior conditions, which we're going to deepen a little bit more minutes, a little bit later, um, they might cause speciation. So for example, I don't know, bears, right? Uh, polar, bear, polar, bear, polar bears and black bears. Um, they diverged not so long ago, but, you know, since one of them now lives in the North Pole, well, a random mutation which caused a polar bear to be white, it favored him. And so now the entire population is white. And then back in time, you know, the ones that are black, they stayed in the forest. And because natural selection favored the ones that are, were black, then they stayed like that. And now we have two different species. But, you know, in the end, they come from the same. So that's a clear example of speciation. And, you know, maybe, well, there are gray bears, but, you know, in a hypothetical example, you're not going to favor the gray bears. But th that's a lie, okay? So now we're going to be discussing allele frequencies. So they are usually expressed as a percentage or proportion and measure how frequently an allele from a specific gene locus occurs in a population. Um... So what you need to understand from allele frequencies is that if you sum them up, you're going to get one, like, or 100%. But um, something really important that you can even learn it from economics or stuff is that if you want to manage percentage numbers, you have to use them as if they were, um, like, decimal numbers. So 
as I told you, when means 100%, and 0.5 means 50%. So this is really useful because we're going to see right away uh, a formula where you can actually calculate which alleles you have as well as their frequencies. And it is really important that you learn how to use it because I've been asked for this in exams and it's a headache if you don't understand it. So, for example, let's say that you are going to have, I don't know, 10,000 individuals. And from this, you're going to have the genotypes, uh, two capital T's, one capital T and one lowercase t, as well as two lowercase t's. So that would be um, homozygous, homozygous dominant, heterozygous, and homozygous um, recessive. So let's say that from the dominant part, you're going to have 4,900. From the heterozygous, you're going to have 4,200. And from the homozygous recessive, you're going to have 900. So total is going to be 10,000. And from this, you would have to first get their frequencies. So how do you do this? Well, you divide the number of whichever category you want over the total. So... Let's say that you want to know what is the frequency of um, dominant heterozygous, um, dominant homozygous, sorry. So two capital T's. So you're going to divide 4,900 between 10,000. So remember, the small number over the big number. That's how I remember it. And so you're going to get 0 0.49. And this 0 0.49, don't freak out. It means 49%. But let's say that, for example, they only give you the amount of dominant alleles and the amount of recessive alleles. They don't tell you how many um, homozygous and how many heterozygous as well as recessive uh, individuals there are. So for this, you would actually need to use a special formula uh, to measure genotype frequencies. And this comes from the Hardy-Weinberg principle, which I'm going to explain a little bit later. But it's just really simple. Like It's like a quadratic function. If you remember a little bit of your... I think it's algebra. Yeah, algebra class. So this is a p square plus 2pq plus q square. So p means dominant and q means recessive. And this is... Uh, well, you know, this is pretty simple. Like, first of all, you need to determine you need to get the allele frequency. So like if they tell you, well, we're going to have a thousand dominant and 500 recessive. Okay. So you say, well, I have 1,500. So first you say, okay, 1,000 over 1,500, which is 0 0.66. So that means that 66%, they're going to be um, homozygous. Well, that, that's gonna, that means that 66% is going to be dominant. And the other 34% is going to be recessive. So it's pretty simple. Now you only have to put it in the Hardy-Weinberg uh, formula. So the P is going to be P squared. So that means 66% or 0 0.66 by 0 0.66, which is going to give you 0 0.43. So that means that you're going to have um, a zero point, like a 43% of dominant alleles. And then you are going to multiply 0 0.34 by 0 0.34, which is going to be 0 
11. So that means that 11% they're going to be recessive alleles. Well, like recessive, yeah, recessive homozygous. And then you're going to add those two. So you'll say, okay, I have 43 plus 11, which is going to be 54. And then if I subtract it to 100, I'm going to get 46%. And so you would have 46% of heterozygous individuals or also known as 2PQ. So it's actually the multiplication of 2 by P multiplied by Q. And that's how you get the entire set of gene frequencies. And if they were like really ruthless and they asked you to get the number of individuals, all you would have to do is to multiply, you know, in this case, 1500, which is 1500. I hope I've said it right. <laughs> multiply by, I don't know, the percentage that you want to get. So let's say that they ask you for the homozygous recessive. They tell you like, oh, well, tell me the entire amount of individuals that have this number. So you multiply 1,500 by 0 0.11 and you're going to get 165, which would be the amount of homozygous recessive. And that is how you solve um, the Hardy-Weinberg equation. Um, actually, these guys, now I can tell you a little bit more about the story. They made it uh, this possible because... They said that certain principles had to not occur in order for population to you know, in order for selective pressure not to be active on a population. So these principles are that there is no actual selection, that there is no mutation, no migration, a large population, and random mating, which actually, if you think about it, sounds like humankind. So anyway, all of these characteristics would stop evolution from happening. And that is what the Harding-Weinberg formula refers to. So if these uh, frequencies, they are uncommon to the ones that you would expect, um, then they're not different, they're not similar, then that means that evolution is occurring. And it can be, you know, at a high rate or at a lower rate, depending on the difference. So you should be able to carry out simple calculations to determine allele frequencies and compare the allele frequencies to geographically isolated populations which is what we're going to be talking about. So reproductive isolation. So species, as we already mentioned, they may gradually change with time to the point where ancestors are going to be so different to their descendants that these two groups are going to be considered different species, which is called speciation. Um, so sometimes, sometimes these ancestral, ancestral species are going to give rise to two or more species depending on how they... Um, get divided, right? So a gene pool includes all the alleles in an interbreeding population and reproductive isolation of populations is equal to dividing the gene pool into two. So dividing, yeah. <laughs> so by reducing or eliminating sexual reproduction that leads to fertile offspring between these dividing populations, then this is gonna reduce or eliminate the gene flow uh, between these pools and therefore creating different species. So um, something that was not mentioned before is gene flow. So gene flow is whenever you're going to have a population with certain characteristics. But let's say that another individual that is from the same species gets there and has another characteristic different from the others. And so this uh, new individual introduces this characteristic to this population. And so that's gene flow, like the fact that new things get there and therefore you get like influence, right? 
So by definition, speciation involves the formation of one or more new species from an ancestral species. Production of two or more new species occurs due to reproductive isolation between populations. And reproductive isolation is the failure of individuals from two populations to mate and produce fertile offspring, resulting in the reduction or elimination of gene flow between the populations. Um, so there are many types of barriers that can be established between um, species and so that they re make reproductive isolation. And an example of this is geographical isolation, which is the most obvious one. Um, so depending on the nature of the species, geographic barriers, they're going to form and they're going to st um, establish two different populations. So this is going to be called allopartic speciation. Uh, they're complicated names, allopatric. So let's say that you have a lake, right? And there are different pigeons, for example. So there are two islands and because the sea separates them, well, eventually they are going to stop mating with each other. And so they're going to lead, they're going to lead to different species of pigeons. So by definition, geographical isolation is the separation of populations by a physical barrier that reduces or prevents gene flow. And allopatric speciation is when a new species develops as a result of part of a population becoming geographically isolated from other population. So, for example, salamanders in California, they got separated because um, there was this uh, huge migration towards east. Some of them went to the west here in California. And so they became so different that at, at some point, if you try to mate these two salamanders, they're going to create offspring, which is not going to be fertile. So therefore, you can determine that these um, different species, they are different species because their offspring cannot mate now. And another type of isolation is the behavioral isolation. So, for example, this is going to happen in mantis. So they're going to have a different um, tone of singing in order to attract mates. And so these mantis, it's going to look for the most similar uh, tone. So if you get one that is different from you, well, then you're not going to like it and you're not going to mate. So this is, um, it's a little bit more difficult to find this in nature, but it's called sympatric speciation because... You know, the tone defines your mate. And finally, well, by definition, behavioral isolation is any behavior that acts to reduce or eliminate gene flow between portions of a population, such as variations in courtship, sunk, or location. And sympatric speciation is when portion of a population develops into a new species while still living in the same geographic area as the ancestral population. So sympatric speciation can occur due to behavioral, temporal, or other forms of speciation. And finally, you're going to have temporal isolation. So this is pretty interesting because it's whenever, I don't know, uh, a certain species might have certain mating times, while the other species, which is, they're similar, but they're going to have other mating times. So an example of this is a toth, which is called Anaxarius americanus and the Anaxarius foliary. And so they're going to have different times of mating throughout the year. Um, one of them is going to be, you know, like in more common names. Um, it's the American toad and the Fowler toad. So they can have different seasons of mating. Actually, it's just a difference of weeks. But because they never 
um, they never have the same period, then they never mate with each other, and therefore they are different now, and that's why they are different species. So temporal isolation is any shift in the timing of a behavior that acts to reduce or eliminate gene flow between portions of a population. And now let's talk about punctuated equilibrium and gradualism. Oh my god, this has become so long. I had never done such a long podcast. Well, it's the last time, I promise. So um, punctuated equilibrium and gradualism, um, there can be, you know, it's like I, I think of this as hunger, as hunger, yeah. So maybe at the beginning of the day, you have established schedule already. So at 8 a.m., I don't know, you want something light. And then at 12 or at 1, it's like lunchtime. And then like at 6 p.m., it's dinner time. But it's gradual. Like there are no really large amounts of food. It's just something gradual. So that would be equal to gradualism. Like in the population where predator is present due to selective pressure or stuff, like species are going to gradually change over time. Um, but for example, punctuated equilibrium is whenever there are rapid changes. So let's say that you have a huge breakfast like at 10 a.m. And you're like, oh my God, I don't want to eat anything. So like, I don't know, 6, 7 p.m. And so it's another huge meal because you're already hungry again. So it's like um, more extreme. So that's the difference between gradualism, like punctuated equilibrium. It's normally going to be like, a, you're not going to get food for a long time. So that means there not, there's not going to be evolution for a long time. But... Whenever there is, it's like a sudden change. So important. Punctuated equilibrium implies long periods without appreciable change and short periods of rapid evolution. Um, so if you compare gradualism and punctuated equilibrium, let's say that gradualism is going to look like, a, in a graph, it's going to look like a letter Y and punctuated equilibrium is going to look like more like a trident <laughs> with like many marked differences. So this can happen in any type of individual and really important as well. Speciation due to the divergence of isolated populations can be gradual and speciation can also occur abruptly after long periods of stability. And the last concept, but not less interesting, is the polyploidy and speciation. So um, this is not, well, this is actually doesn't happen in humans and on very little animals. It does happen in some animals, however, but it is mostly, most, it's most common in plants. So this concept is called polyploidy and it means that a certain species of plants can get different sets of chromosomes. So for example, you could get 2N for one plant, but another one could have 3N or 4N or even another one, which is called hexadecaploid, which is going to have 16N. So the source of this um, condition, polyploidy, is whenever you are going to have the meiosis part. And so there's going to be a non-disjunction of chromosomes, uh, you know, during mitosis or meiosis. So the spindle meiotic fibers, they're going to fail. And so all sister chromatids are going to be inherited together. So it is not weird in plants, actually. And for some strange reason, they can actually keep it on mating. So there are no barriers to this. And, you know, like the only issue with this, well, if you, you actually need to have like a diploid set of chromosomes, like it has to be either diploid or tetraploid, tetra means four, or deca, 
hexadecaploid, which is 16n. So the point is that it has to be an even number in order for, you know, um, meiosis to work fine. And the, there are actually other types of plants that have 3n, and they are able to reproduce as well, but they instead use asexual reproduction uh, through clonation. So this is the case, for example, for some banana. So they are going to have 3n, and that's why they're always going to be clones of each other, but they're never going to be able to actually develop well. And this can even be a problem, because banana are actually in danger of getting extinct because of a, a disease which is running along them. And because all of them have the same genetic material, it's super dangerous, but, you know, that's for something else. And anyway... A clear example of this even number of chromosome sets is the genus Allium, which is plants such as garlic, onion, and leeks. So asexual reproduction here is common as well, but the failure of chromosomes to separate during mitosis in asexual reproduction has led, for example, to doubling the number of chromosomes. So, for example, for Allium, Allium canadense, we're going to have uh, 2n, but Allium canadense lavendulae is going to have 4n. Um, so let's say the 2n is 14 and the 4n is going to be 28. And the Allium validum is going to be 8n, which is equal to 56. And the haploid number for the Allium species is 7. So a canadense lavendulae is tetraploid. And a A validum, well, an Allium validum, is going to be octoploid. So important. Polyploid individuals will have chromosome numbers that are some multiple of the haploid number. For example, if n is 5, polyploid individuals could have chromosomes 15, 20, and 25. And 25. Um, for, ex for example, you're not going to have one which is n5 and have like 37. No, that's impossible. And finally, the very, very, very last concept that you cannot get confused with is anaploidy. So anaploidy can actually happen in humans. Um which is when you're not going to have the non-standard number of a single chromosome. So, for example, Down syndrome, you're going to have a trisomy of chromosome 21. So you can write it as 2n plus 1. But you cannot confuse it with triploidy, which is having three sets, um, because, you know, Down syndrome is a syndrome. Like, it's not a common condition. But outside of that, everything is covered and... Oh my god, it's the first time we hit the 30 minutes. I'm so happy about it. Well, um, anyway, guys, hope you have got to this last moment and see you around. Bye-bye.